Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market ready to pop the question The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 41, The Long farewell. Today's proverb comes from Jonathan Swift. I'll read it twice. Life is a tragedy wherein we sit as spectators for a while and then act our part in it. Once more, life is a tragedy wherein we sit as spectators for a while and then act our part in it. It's fascinating how often philosophers have to argue that human agency exists. It's amazing how often theologians have had to argue that autonomy exists, that freedom of the will exists. There are scores of theological treatises, philosophical treatises, arguing in favor of human autonomy. And it really doesn't seem like any of them is ultimately persuasive. We keep coming back to determinism. Determinism is a philosophical position that makes a lot of sense to people on an intuitive level. It makes sense on a gut level. And determinism often makes sense to us in the darkest moments of our life. We're not often tempted by deterministic philosophy 
when things are going great. It tends to be that when things fall apart, we turn to a belief that it had to be this way. And part of that is because of the confusion that settles into our hearts in the aftermath of sin. More on that later. You don't need a degree in philosophy, though, to feel that determinism is true. And I would wager that most of the people, most of the people who are tempted to say in a moment of despair, I feel like I didn't have a choice here. Most of those people don't have a degree in philosophy. Most of them couldn't argue their position. They would simply point at the way things are and they'd say the way things are is funny. I can't account for how my life fell apart. I can look at every moment, year by year, and it just doesn't add up. How did it turn out this way? And a person might ask this question not out of self-pity, but, but genuine confusion. Why me? Why did this happen to me? Where was my error? You don't need to know what the word determinism means to be a determinist. Or to be a soft determinist, at least. This is not true of a number of other theological and philosophical positions. For instance, if you're a post-millennialist, you know what the term post-millennialism means. You've heard it explained before. On the other hand, you may sometimes feel that you have no control over your life or be baffled that it's all turned out the way that it did and see some kind of malevolent hand forcing things to be the way that they are and adopt a deterministic point of view without ever knowing who coined the term, what the arguments are in its favor. So why all this about determinism? Again, today's proverb, Life is a tragedy wherein we sit as spectators for a while and then act our part. The meaning of this quote is not you can't stop people from dying, which is sad, and then you die too. I don't believe that this quote has anything to do really with physical death. And that's because often enough, you can stop people from physically dying. Doctors do it every day. Nurses do it every day. To some extent, the armed forces in putting an end to other people's lives keep other lives going. So I don't think the meaning of the quote is you can't stop other people from dying. Ultimately, this is true. But day by day, it is possible to save a life. So what's it mean? Life is a tragedy wherein we sit as spectators for a while and then act our part. I think that people are more apt to try to save people's lives 
than to try to save people's souls. When it comes to saving lives, we often act openly. When it comes to saving souls, though, we get bashful and embarrassed. When it comes to saving lives, we are actors. When it comes to saving souls, though, we are, as Swift says, spectators. We watch souls fall apart on a regular basis. There is a homeless man who occupies a certain street corner that I drive past all the time. Maybe I drive past the street corner five or six times a week. I have no problem handing this man a few dollars out the window. I never know what to say to him, though. And I'll confess that I find it easier when I hand him the money to say, hey man, here you go, than to say, God bless you. And I know that I should say, God bless you. I know that if you do something charitable, you should do it in Christ's name. And even though this man is, you know, penniless, even though I know his name, I don't know his last name, I know his first name, even though my station in life is so far above his, I still feel embarrassed giving him some moral lesson when I hand him the money. It's easy to hand him the money. It's easy to give him this money. It's hard to advise him, though. And even when I say advice, I don't mean like scolding him or lecturing. I have no idea how this man came to live on the street. But, I mean, even God loves you feels like a piece of advice. I have no problem delivering a lecture to a crowd of people and declaring God's love for them. I have no problem writing an essay and declaring from a theological standpoint, God loves all human beings. But there's something about dealing with this stranger where I become a spectator of his soul. When Swift says life is a tragedy, I don't get the impression he's talking about physical death at all. I don't think this is a euphemism for physical death. If he was talking about physical death, I think the quote would be, death is a tragedy wherein we sit as spectators and then act out our part in it. There's no need to say life when you mean death. Although it is funny that there's a number of quotes uh, in any quote book about life where death is actually being spoken of. Life is a euphemism for death in a lot of quotes about life.
The idea that life is tragic, at least as Swift states it, probably has more in common with Job's claim that man is born into trouble as flames fly up than it does with some kind of oh, purely uh, pessimistic approach to the world. Trouble is not natural, but it is inevitable. But I think the pith of Swift's claim that the whole word, or excuse me, the whole proverb, is about the word spectators. Life is a tragedy wherein we sit as spectators for a while and then act our part in it. What kind of spectators, though? Spectators can mean a lot of things. It's interesting that he says we sit as spectators, not life is a tragedy wherein we are spectators for a while, but we sit as spectators. Which suggests to me that the kind of thing that life is that reduces us to spectators is not like a fist fight, you know. If you see a fist fight, you could be a spectator, but then you can also intervene in a fist fight. Tear the two fellows apart. Hey, break it up. A fist fight is the sort of thing that you could be a spectator of and then transform yourself into an actor or a player. But Swift says life's a tragedy where we sit as spectators. Which really suggests a theater to me. Life is a sort of tragedy that plays out on a stage. And the spectator has no part in the play. The tragedies of others play out more like a play or a film than they do anything else that we would be spectators of. A lot of tragedies, a lot of tragedies make us feel completely helpless as we watch them. And it's the audience's own helplessness that creates a kind of horror. By the time you've reached adulthood, you've watched a few of these horror stories play out. You have been the spectator in some tragedies or of some tragedies by the time you reach adulthood. By the time you reach adulthood, you've watched people slowly, patiently, inexplicably ruin their lives. Often, the inexplicability of other people's bad decisions is what renders us mere spectators. We might otherwise be actors in the story of their lives, but there are times when people make decisions that are so baffling, so manifestly awful, that we are stunned, rendered mute, like people with tickets at a play. The inexplicability of other people's bad decisions sometimes renders us mute because we're curious to see if they will get away with it. We are always interested to see how people will turn out. By the time you're an adult, you've probably also been tracked down by a few people who used to know you, maybe a long time ago. 
Because people want to see how, how you turned out. Did you make it? Do you have a family? Are you successful? And when you talk to people that are sizing you up after having not seen you in many years, you know that they're trying to connect your present life with something they might have seen in you a long time ago. We try to make sense of people we've known for a long time, comparing who they are as adults, with who they were as young people. We're also spectators for the simple reason that we cannot predict the future. And a lot of times the tragic decisions that people make are baffling, but they're not so egregiously awful in the moment that we feel as though we can say anything for fear that we will come off as being kind of alarmist. As a teacher of 16 years, I have not infrequently encountered students making decisions on where they're going to go to college that shock me. Given the proclivities of the student, sort of temptations that they're given to, it amazes me that they and their parents have hacked out the decision to go to a certain college. Of course, there's nothing to say to people at that point. It's really hard to step into a decision that somebody's made about sending their child to college and say, well, your child has a very weak faith. They will probably reject Jesus if they go to college. Because in the end, there might only be in your mind a 50-50 chance that it will go that way. But you're not sure of them. You have no confidence in them. Plenty of students that go off to college, I think, well, you're going to be lucky if you're still going to church at the end of this. Of course, this sounds like a horribly rude thing to tell their parents. You have basically allowed your child to get away with way too much. They have no discipline. They will make all the wrong friends when they go off to college. They'll very quickly stop going to church. They'll begin to listen to their friends. They'll take a bunch of psych classes, a bunch of anthropology classes. And you'll have someone who's shaming you for the way you vote on social media in about 18 months. I can't prove any of that. So, I'm a spectator. I watch. Everyone watches. And from time to time, you're wrong. Like, wow, good thing I didn't say anything. How embarrassing would it be to tell some parent, uh, yeah, child shouldn't go to college, just gonna quit the faith. Kid's just fine two years later. You don't know. Only human beings make questionable decisions. Angels don't. Demons don't. Demons' decisions aren't questionable. They're just wrong. Animals don't make questionable decisions. Animals do dumb stuff, but only people make questionable decisions. 
only human beings make decisions that prompt their friends and colleagues to say in their hearts, oh, man, I do not know about that. There's a lot of different kinds of tragedies. Some tragedies occur suddenly, like a man chokes to death on his dinner, a child struck by a car dies. There are other kinds of tragedies that develop over the course of months and years. And for those kind of tragedies, we're especially helpless. It's easy to stop somebody from a tragedy that would fell them at once. I mean, if your friends, if your friends blistering drunk and about to get behind the wheel of a car, easy to say no to that. Or it's at least easier than telling your friend not to start drinking too early in the day. Why? Once isn't going to hurt anything. Twice isn't going to hurt anything. What could go wrong? We feel helpless to warn people of our fears. The emphasis in the quote, again, is on spectators, which is to say it's not about the tragic nature of life. It's about the helplessness of the role of the spectator. And I like viewing the spectator that Swift refers to as a spectator in a theater, maybe as opposed to a, a movie, like a play, because there is a kind of vulnerability to the actors on a stage in a play where if the audience really wants to, they can revolt. But stopping a friend from a slow burning tragedy is just as hard as stopping a play that's going. We become horribly self-conscious. Or it's simply lack of love. We don't love people enough to prevent them from tragedy. We allow them to get away with it because our love is thin. We invent other excuses to be spectators as well. But then there's the second part of the quote. Life is a tragedy wherein we sit as spectators for a while. That's a, that's a whole proverb right there. But then there's this latter half. And then act our part in it. It is far easier to see the slow-burning tragedies in our friends' lives emerge than it is to see the slow-burning tragedy in our own life emerge. And yet, we often feel like a spectator to our own lives when our lives are falling apart. Even when we know we alone are responsible for the way in which our lives, our souls, our careers, our reputations have fallen apart. Even when we know we alone are responsible, we still feel like spectators in it. It's still an otherworldly feeling. It's an ecstatic feeling, not in a good way, just soul lifted out of body, witnessing body from an objective standpoint. It's this kind of ecstatic feeling when things begin to fall apart. And when I say things fall apart, I mean, I mean the chickens come home to roost. Wages of sin 
start to make themselves manifest. Things you thought were secret, not secret. And you feel like a spectator, but this has a lot to do with the nature of sin, nature of temptation, and the kind of knowledge that emerges in the aftermath of sin. I talk about this in my book, How to Be Unlucky. There's a kind of self-forgetfulness or loss of self-awareness that occurs in any temptation. Where one of the things that goes on in any temptation is a, is a forgetting of who you are. You forget you're a husband, you forget you're a father, you forget you're a son, you forget you're a Christian. And you make as though to act like something else. There are a number of promises a man must make to himself in order to sin if the temptation to sin is drawn out long enough. We all have to figure out ways of justifying our sin. One last time, no one will know, no one will care, etc. It's worth it. That's why I will sin, because it's worth it. But none of these reasons pan out. And after we sin, which always involves a seizing of pleasure in the moment, as soon as the pleasure's gone, we always feel as though we were tricked. And when we look back over the process whereby we were tempted, we think, I lost myself at some point along the way. I fell into a trance-like state. I wasn't thinking. I do believe that. That there's a kind of shutting down of the intellect that occurs when a person sins. I believe that sin is anti-intellectual, that it is a darkening of the intellect. It's a darkening of the soul. And when we come out of the false pleasure that sin offers, the lights come back on and we are dazed, the way that a man is always dazed when the lights suddenly come back on. The lights come back on, we sinned in the darkness, and then the evidence of our sin is manifest when the light of consciousness returns to us. We say, how could I have been so stupid? It wasn't me. And we look back at the moment we sinned, and we say, it was someone else. It felt like someone else. I can't believe I did that. And not because we're trying to make excuses for our sin, but there is, even for the man who's willing to fully acknowledge his own moral culpability for his sin, there is still a kind of madness, a kind of intellectual self-loss and darkness that attends every act of sin, which is baffling to try to remember. What was I thinking at the time? Well, you weren't thinking anything. It's like trying to remember what you were thinking while you were asleep. like spectators. We watch ourselves from the other side of sin, having caved to temptation. We look at ourselves from the other side of sin, and we think, who was that? But because sin closes off the mind and closes off the soul, it really does seem like someone else. 
And it can feel as though you had no choice. I'm not saying that this is true, that you don't have a choice, but it feels that way. And the only way to really describe it accurately is to say I felt like a spectator. That's what you have to do in order to cave to temptation. You have to exit yourself. You have to betray yourself. You have to become your own personal Judas. So what do we learn from all this? What do we learn from this feeling of powerlessness while watching other people's lives fall apart? And a feeling of powerlessness that overtakes our hearts when our own lives are falling apart. What do we make of the feeling, the sensation of complete loss of freedom, complete loss of autonomy? In the Consolation of Philosophy, Lady Philosophy says that the world is always changing and that a man's luck is always changing. To teach him not to put too much confidence in the things of this world. And if the truth of the matter is that in other people's moral failings and in our own spiritual failings, we feel as though we had no control. We feel like spectators. The best thing we can possibly do is to constantly submit our lives to one who is beyond this world. And if we feel as though we have no control, then we have all the more reason to call on one whose power is beyond comprehension. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.